0: 23, as our younger ones are leaving to go to kids' worship time. Excuse me this morning, I'm fighting a little bit of a stuffy nose, and I don't know if it's allergies or what is going on. In my high school French class, we had to read The Count of Monte Cristo in French, and it was a little difficult. And it's an an amazing story of betrayal and revenge. I don't know if you know the story of the Count of Monte Cristo. Edmond Dantes, he's the main character. He's a young, handsome, up-and-coming soldier on this ship. And he basically is primed to take over being captain of this ship. And he's engaged to this beautiful young woman named Mercedes. Now, if you're French, you say Mercedes. If you're English, you call her Mercedes. But his three best friends conspire against him. His three best friends are jealous of him. Mondego is jealous because he loves Mercedes. He loves Mercedes. His other friend, Danglar, wants to be promoted to the captain of the ship. And then his other friend, Cadarus, he's just simply jealous that Dante's is so successful. And so these three supposed friends conspire against Dante's and they get him arrested for a crime he didn't commit. And he has to go spend his days on the Alcatraz of its day, Chateau Dif. It's a prison of which nobody would ever escape. And while he's spending eight years of solitary confinement in this prison for a crime he did not commit, he begins digging his way to freedom. And he comes across this priest, Abbe Faria. And this priest tells him about a treasure on this island. And if he were to just escape, he could go find this treasure. And so over time, Dantes does escape the island. And he goes to the island of Monte Cristo and he finds the treasure. And then he re-emerges into society as a new man. He's this mysterious, wealthy count of Monte Cristo. And he just has two goals as he re-emerges as the Count of Monte Cristo. Number one, I'm going to, he says, repay those that showed me kindness with generosity, but I'm going to go find those three friends that betrayed me, that stabbed me in the back, and I'm going to exact revenge upon them. And so he goes and finds out where his friends are living, and he, he basically reintroduces himself into their lives, and they don't know who he is because he's the Count of Monte Cristo. And basically, he destroys their lives the, the man that was married to his love, basically he brings up evidence that he's committed treason against the government and basically his family falls apart and that man commits suicide. The other one's ruined financially and then the third one is basically killed by a cohort. It's a story of revenge. It's a story of betrayal. Dantes was betrayed by three friends he thought were friends that were close to him but they made sure that he would suffer. And I wonder, I wonder, have you ever been betrayed by someone you thought was a true friend? Have you ever been stabbed in the back? Have you ever been abandoned, maybe or or forsaken by a family member, by someone that you love? Or maybe there was somebody you thought was an ally. And then when it came time to go public, that person embarrassed you or went against you. Maybe even today you find yourself thinking, you know what, nobody's on my side. I'm all alone. Nobody really cares. All of us, to some degree or another, have felt the sting of betrayal. The sting of abandonment the sting of getting forgotten, the sting of rejection, and it cuts. It cuts us to the very depths of our souls. And during those times when we're hurt, when we're abandoned, when we're stabbed in the back, we're often thinking to ourselves, does God even answer prayer? Does God even care about me? Is God even there? Is it even worth it? Where's God in the midst of all this? Can I truly trust God? is he even going to listen to me when i pray well you're not alone this morning you're in good company with king david let's recap for a moment as we're trekking the life of king david he's the anointed shepherd king but he's not king yet he's killed goliath and as we saw last week saul hates david Saul has tried to kill him on multiple occasions. He threw a spear at him twice to pin him against the wall. As we saw last week, David and Saul are arch enemies. And now we come to chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. And as we come to chapter 23, David is on the run. David is being pursued, David is being chased down, David is being hunted by King Saul. And it's during this time that David gets rejected. David gets abandoned. David gets betrayed. So let me ask you a question this morning, and I want this question to linger for a little while because we're going to see how the text answers it. But here's the question for us this morning. How does God respond to you during times of deep darkness? All of us have gone through times of deep darkness And the question is, how does God respond? How does God respond to you during times of deep darkness? So let's look in our Bibles at 1 Samuel chapter 23. Let's read verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to explain what's going on here as we go along. 1 Samuel 23, starting in verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines, Philistines and save Kalah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Kalah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kalah. Here's the situation Kalah is a town, it's a fortified town, and it's a town that was kind of the breadbasket of its culture, of its day. It was producing crops. And so the Philistines said, Hey, this is a good prize, let's go down and, and raid their crops. And so the Philistines kept going down and stealing the crops from the city of Calah. And so David says, Lord, I'm going to pray. Do do I go and rescue them out of the Philistines' hand? And the Lord says, yes. And his men aren't really convinced. And so David prays again, and God says, yes, go save the men of Cala. And so David does that. He goes down with his men and he becomes the Savior. He saves them from the Philistines. He has basically pushed back the Philistines. They're no longer coming down and raiding their threshing floors, taking their crops. And so David has been their Savior. Now I'm going to summarize verses 6 through 14. We're not going to read this whole chapter. In, in verses 6 through 14, Basically, what happens is Abiathar the priest shows up with what's called an ephod, a priestly garment, is used by David to pray again, and David has 400 men with him, actually 600 men with him, and God says to him, basically, the Kalah, the men of Kalah, are going to turn against you, David. They're going to betray you, they're going to give you over to King Saul. The men that you have just saved, the city you've just saved, they're going to turn your back on you, David. They're going to stab you in the back. They're going to give you over to King Saul. And so what happens is David and his 600 men had to flee and hide out in the wilderness. And let's just pick up in verse 14 because it's kind of a summary statement there at the end. Verse 14, David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. You see, David's in a hot spot. He's been betrayed by friends that he had just saved. Just like Dantes had been betrayed by his friends. David had just saved this city. And they turn their back on him. They betray him. They stab him in the back. Have you ever been betrayed by someone that you poured your life into? Maybe you didn't quote-unquote save them like David saved the city, but have you invested time and energy and effort into a person? You poured your life into them to find them betray you, reject you, stab you in the back. I can think back to when I was a youth pastor many years ago. This happened to me. There was a young middle school boy who was kind of a troubled teen. He was from a broken home, single mom. And his mom said, I want you to mentor this middle school boy. And so I said, okay, I, I will do that. And so I ended up each week picking him up from school. I would take him to McDonald's. We'd, we'd do Bible studies. We would, um, decide, would disciple him. And so I, I spent almost every week for a long time investing in this young man. One night at about one o'clock, I get a phone call from his mom. She says, you've got to come over to the house. It's one o'clock. Why why do I need to come over to the house? Well, he got arrested for joyriding. And he got arrested by his Sunday school teacher. which didn't make it very much. I mean, one of our Sunday school teachers was the state patrolman at the time, and so I go over to the house and and basically have to walk him through this stuff and minister to the family during a trying time. Then a few months later, in the sanctuary, it's about time for church to start, and I'm standing in the interest of the sanctuary as a youth pastor. His mom walks in, and she basically throws the kid at me and says, here, you take the blankety-blank son of a blank kid. I'm done with him. And she goes over and sits by herself and pouts, and I'm, okay, so what am I supposed to do with this kid? So I invested a lot of time in this young man. But then here's what happened. Over time, she got bitter. She got angry. She got mad. She began spreading rumors about me. She began um, just spewing venom um, she said a lot of n- really nasty things about my wife. Uh, she began to be just, just basically stabbed me in the back. And, and I'd invested a lot of time and energy into her son, and she basically just um, like a dagger went against me and my family. And so I know what it's like to, to pour your time and energy into someone and then have them betray you. And that's what's going on here with David. David had saved the men of Calah, the city of Calah, and they turned their back on him. They betrayed him. They stabbed him in the back. But then God in his kind providence does something. Let's pick up in verses 15 and 18. God does not leave David alone. Let's pick up in verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. This is one of the ways God helps us in our dark times. He sends a friend. And that's what God does. We don't know how Jonathan found David, but somehow God in his providence reconnected David and Jonathan and said, Jonathan went and strengthened the hand of David, prayed for him, encouraged him. It reminded him of the covenant. Said, listen, you're going to be king. And this is the last time David and Jonathan would ever see each other. They part ways. They institute a covenant of, of, of this male bonding that we saw last week. And so God in his kind providence allows David for the very last time to be encouraged by a friend. But that's short-lived because in verses 19 through 29, David's betrayed a second time. He's already been betrayed by the men of Kalah. Now he's going to be betrayed by the Ziphites, the men of Ziph, Basically, the Ziphites are very eager to give David up. And so Saul comes and says, Where's David? And the Ziphites say, We know where David is. He's hiding up in these caves, he's hiding up in these hills. And so they're very ready to give David up, to betray him. And here's what's even uh, more of a dagger because the Ziphites were actually family members of David, they were from the tribe of Judah. So it was closer to home that these men would be so willing to betray David. And so he's been betrayed twice. The, the, the city of Caleb betrayed him and the Ziphites betrayed him and now he's running for his life. And at the end of this chapter, you almost, it's like slow motion in the original language. David goes over the hill and Saul chases him almost to get him. And then David goes over the hill and Saul chases and almost gets him. And David goes over the hill and Saul's almost there to get David. Then all of a sudden, there's an announcement. The messenger comes in and says, King Saul, we're being attacked back at home by the Philistines. And so Saul says, We'll have to wait another day to pursue David, saved by the bell. David is saved from Saul pursuing him. And then look at verses 28 and 29, the very end of the chapter. Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, the place was called the Rock of Escape. Some of yours may say the Rock of Divisions. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En-Gedi, the strongholds of Engedi was basically a rocky, craggy hiding place with an oasis of water. So there was an oasis, a, a spring of water up in the mountains where David could hide and have a fresh source of water in the springs of Engedi. And so David is running for his life. David has been betrayed. Saul is hunting him down like a dog. He's hiding out in caves. And what's interesting is that David actually writes a psalm about this episode. So what I want us to do is to turn to Psalm 54. It's very interesting that you have psalms that correspond to the stories that we read in 1 Samuel. We must remember David was a psalmist. David wrote the psalms, many of them. And so let's go to Psalm 54 And as you go to Psalm 54, your Bible translations will help you understand the context of the psalm by giving you what's called an uninspired superscript. Now, what's an uninspired superscript? It's basically a statement right before verse 1 that explains to you the context of what's going on in the psalm. So let's read the superscript that you should have in your Bible with Psalm 54. It should say something like this before you even get to verse 1. To the choir master with string instruments, a maskil of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is David, is not David hiding among us. Now that quote, the Ziphites went and told, Saul, is not David hiding among us, is directly from verse 19 of what we just saw. And so here we have David in a real life situation being abandoned twice, being forsaken twice, he's writing a psalm about it. Now, we don't know when he wrote the psalm, but the Ziphites have just given him up to Saul. He's hiding out in the caves, and he goes out and he writes the psalm. So let's read the psalm together of what David writes during this dark, troubling time. There's just seven verses. Let's read it together. Psalm 54. Oh God, save me by your name. And vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. And your faithfulness put an end to them. With the free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This psalm is easily broken up into five parts. Here's part one, verses one and two. David's desperate cry for help. Here's the cry, "O God, save me! God, vindicate me. God, answer my prayer. Lord, come to my rescue. And notice what he says here. God, save me by your name. Save me by your name. We looked a few weeks ago at David's such importance of wanting to know the name of the Lord. He could have just said, God, save me. God, save me by your power. God, save me by your might. God, save me by your sovereignty. But what does he say there in verse 1? Oh, God, save me by your name. Because the name of the Lord carries everything about God. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, he could have just said our help is in the Lord. But he says our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth proverbs 18 10 the name of the lord is a strong tower now he could have just said the lord's a strong tower but he says the name of the lord is a strong tower the righteous man runs into it and it's safe there's something powerful about calling upon the name of the lord because the name of the lord carries everything that god is and so what we see here is this issue of crying out to god david's in dire straits and he cries out to god god are you there God, are you going to save me? God, do you hear? God, are you going to answer my prayer? And the question that you may be asking is, does God answer prayer? Is God there for me? And the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, have you ever been this desperate before? Have you ever had those dark times where you just, all you could do was just say, God, I need your help. God, I'm suffering. I don't even know if you're there, God, but I need you right now. Lord, please come to my aid. Lord, please help me. Lord, please Listen to me. And I love the psalm because it gives you permission to do that. You know, the reason why I love the psalms is because they're so raw. I mean, the psalms are really raw. These are just men crying out to God from the depths of their heart because they're hurting. Real-life people with real-life situations crying out to a real-life God. God, are you there? God, it's a dark time. God, I'm being chased. Please answer my call and then in verse three we see the second part of the song we see the reason why god why david prays why is he praying verse three for because strangers have risen against me ruthless men seek my life who are these ruthless men that are seeking his life well we've just looked at them the men of Keilah had just betrayed him the ziphites had just betrayed him and saul and his armies are, are, are ramping up their efforts to try to kill david Ruthless men are after me. And what about these ruthless men? They do not set God before themselves. They do not set God before themselves. They're not acting in God's plan. They're not seeking God's will. And this may happen to you. Let me just be very honest. Ungodly people will hurt you. And even Christians will hurt you. And there's a lot of people that don't act according to God's glory, and they do things selfishly, and they do things to hurt you, and they do things to cut you, and they do things to abandon you, and they do things to reject you. And here's the issue it can really bother us because at times it seems like they're getting away with it. Does that ever bother anybody here? Ungodly people are treating me like trash, and I'm suffering, and it seems like they've got it all together. Nothing ever happens to them, they're not caught. Nothing bad happens to them. They can go along their merry way and have success. And here I am, the one suffering. And they're the ones doing the wrong thing. I haven't done anything wrong. Why are they suffering? And we're burned by injustice. And we want God to act. And it's okay to want God to act. It's okay for God to act in justice according to his timetable. But I want you to notice something at the end of verse 3 there's a Selah. You see the Selah? What's a Selah? A Selah is a pause. When you come to a Selah in the Psalms, there's a pause. We're supposed to pause here and think, okay, David's poured out his heart. David's crying out with anguish. David wants justice. Pause. Let me think about this. Okay, I'm going to get ready for what's going to happen next. The very center of the psalm. Here's the third part of the psalm. It's the very center, the most important. It's David's ultimate trust in the name of the Lord, the character of God. Notice what he says there in verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. God is my help. He's the upholder. He's the sustainer. He's the one that's going to get me through this. Now, now, when it says there, God is the upholder of my life, it's more than just God comes and gives me help every now and again. It's this whole idea that it's constant help. It's a sustained help. It's constant power that God gives us. You know, humans can do some pretty amazing things for a sustained period of time, if you really think about it. Now, this past week, I went to the Guinness Book of World Records, and I found some interesting facts. Anybody want to know what the longest sustained note on a wind or brass instrument is? Hold your breath. One minute, 13 seconds on a clarinet by Philip Palmer in the UK back in 2006. Now, some of you kids might be interested in this next one. What's the longest video game marathon marathon playing a motion-sensing dance game? Anybody want to know? Carrie Swadiki of the United States played Just Dance 2014 for 76 hours, 4 minutes, and 52 seconds. That's a long time to be dancing on Just Dance. Now, some of you are into fitness, and some of you know how to do abdominal planks. I'm not going to do an abdominal plank up here, but you guys, you guys know what an abdominal plank is? Like, you need plank. What's the longest time you can plank? Sometimes I can, I can, I can get up to a minute If I'm really trying hard, maybe 90 seconds and then I'm shaking. Anybody want to know what the longest abdominal plank is? It's by Mao Weidong in China, 4 hours, 26 minutes. That's a long time to be an abdominal plank. Okay, anybody want to know what the longest time holding breath underwater is? It's by Stig Severinsen of Denmark back in 2012. He was allowed to hyperventilate with oxygen prior to the attempt and he hyperventilated for 19 minutes and 30 seconds, but here's how long he stayed underwater. Anybody want to guess? This, this was a shocking. 22 minutes. Now, those are pretty impressive things, aren't they? Those are human acts of sustained, like, amazing. But every human action comes to an end. The clarinet comes to an end. The, the plank comes to an end. The holding breath comes to an end. The dancing comes to an end. But God's help never comes to an end. Notice what he says here. He is the sustainer, the upholder of my life. God's help's never going to run out. God's not going to be on the Guinness Book of World of Records and have somehow this, this, this record that, you know, kind of comes to an end. God, God's sovereign. He's always going to be there to help you. The next part of the psalm, verse 5. It's the answer. This is God's answer. Verse 5, he will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness put an end to them. Now David doesn't want to take justice into his own hands. He wants justice, but David's not going to go take justice into his own hands. We're going to see this in the next couple of weeks. There's many opportunities where David could, could have killed Saul, but he chooses not to. He knows Romans twelve nineteen, even though it hadn't been written yet. Paul writes, beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's okay to want God to act. It's okay to want God to to give justice, to vindicate you. But you don't take that into your own hands. Let God do it in his time, in his way. And then the last part of the psalm here is the final section. It's in verses 6 and 7. It's David's joyful response of worship notice what he says with a free will offering i will sacrifice to you now now here's what a free will offering meant in david's time david's not bargaining with god david's not saying to god hey god if you get me out of this then i promise i'll go to church have we ever played that game with god before god if you do this i promise i'll never do this david's not playing that game David says, listen, I'm I'm not going to bargain with you, God. My only posture is to come in humble dependence. And you can save me, you may not save me. I I really don't know what your plan is, but I'm going to humble myself before you, and I'm going to come freely and worship you, and I'm not going to bargain with you. I'm not going to play these games with you, God. I'm going to come to you with humility. And then notice what else he says there in verse 6. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. You know what's interesting? God often does answer prayer and sometimes God answers prayer in ways we don't understand and in surprising ways but here's the thing that I often fail to do this is a personal thing that I struggle with I oftentimes fail to give God thanks I don't thank him I'm like a spoiled child that just kind of expects God to do that because after all isn't that God's job description I think God's job description is to help God's job description is to answer prayer. God's job description is to be powerful. And so when he does answer, when he does show up in power, when he does sustain you, sometimes we can just spec, well, that's what God's supposed to do because he's God. And we don't thank him. And notice what Paul, I mean, notice what David thanks him for there. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Do you thank God for the goodness in your life? Listen to Psalm 16, one through two. This is again from David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Listen to Jesus in Luke 10. I mean, Luke 11, 10 through 14. Jesus says, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it'll be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Jesus is saying, none of you would do that. If he ask for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Are you like David, where you're in a dark time? You've been abandoned, you've been rejected, you, you, and you go to Him and you cry out to God. And do you realize that God is the sustainer of your life? Are you thankful when God answers prayer? Now, let me just stop. We've seen the episode in 1 Samuel 23. We've seen Psalm 54. But let's tie this back around to Jesus. Because all along, every week I've been saying David is a picture of Jesus. David is a type of Jesus. David is a prototype of Jesus. David had to endure betrayal and suffering before he took the throne as the king of Israel. In the same way, Jesus had to suffer betrayal and suffering before he took the throne as king of kings and lord of lords. How was Jesus betrayed by a friend? On a night, one of his best friends, Judas, comes up and kisses him. How is he treated on the cross? Pilate says on three occasions, I find no guilt in him, but yet sends him to death. And if you go and read the Gospels, you find out that the soldiers scourged Jesus' back with a cat of nine tails ripping his flesh. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe upon him and put a crown of thorns upon his head. And they spit on him and they punched him in the face. And they put a sign above his head, King of the Jews, and one of the thieves next to him blasphemed him. You could say this, that Jesus experienced the greatest treachery and betrayal that anybody on this planet has ever experienced. More so than Dantes and his three friends in the county of Monte Cristo, even more so than David being betrayed by the men of Calah and the Ziphites. If there was anybody that was betrayed, if there was anybody that suffered, if there was anybody that was rejected, anybody that was abandoned, it was Jesus. But those are just the physical sufferings of Jesus. Think about the spiritual anguish Jesus experienced on the cross. In Matthew 27, 45 through 46. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli Eli Lemasek Bactani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the darkest moment in Jesus' life. He's hanging on the cross. He's experiencing all of the guilt and punishment that you and I should have experienced in that concentrated moment where God makes him a sin offering, and in a sense, God treats Jesus as if he is the vilest of sinners, even though he never sinned, because he's taking our sin, and in that moment, he's abandoned. He's rejected. He's forsaken. It's dark. If there ever was a person on this earth that felt the full weight of rejection, the full weight of abandonment, the full weight of being forsaken, it was Jesus in those moments, those dark moments when he's hanging on the cross. But yet God vindicates him. What does God do? Three days later, God raises him from the tomb. God raises him from the tomb and gives the victory of resurrection. So let me just say this. Jesus was forsaken so that you and I would never have to be forsaken. Jesus was abandoned so you and I would never have to feel the abandonment. Jesus experienced all of the rejection and punishment that comes from our sin so we would never have to experience that ourselves. Acts 2 236 Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Before the throne, he had to suffer the cross. And should we expect any less? As his followers, should we not expect any less? Should we we not expect abandonment? Should we not expect suffering? Should we not expect pain? Should we not expect rejection, persecution? Yes, we should expect it. But the victory for us is the fact that Jesus bore that in his body on the cross and three days later he rose again, giving us a victory over sin. That's the good news of the gospel. In Psalm 54, God was David's help. God was David's sustainer. God was the upholder of his life. And so, how can God be that to you? How can God be your help? How can God be your sustainer? How can God be the upholder of your life? Well, it comes through Jesus. Because Jesus suffered on the cross, because Jesus rose again, and because Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, our only help and hope comes from Jesus. So, what do you do this morning? Maybe you're not like David where people are chasing you down and you're abandoned. Or maybe you are here this morning and you're in the thick of of this dark time in your life. No matter where you are, what do you do? You do what David does. You cry out to God. You have permission to cry your heart out to God in anguish and say, God, save me. God, deliver me. God, help me. God, come to my rescue. And you hear the words of Jesus coming into your ear saying, I'm your help. I'm your sustainer. I'm the upholder of your life. I've experienced darkness for you so that in your times of darkness, I can be your sustainer and help you through. You know the song. You were broken that I might be healed. You were cast off that I might draw near. You were thirsty that I might come drink. Cried out in anguish that I might sing. How deep is your love, how high and wide is your mercy. How deep is your grace, our hearts overflow with praise to you. You knew darkness that I might know light, wept great tears that mine might be dried, stripped of your glory that I might be clothed, crushed by your Father to call me your own. How deep is your love, how high and how wide is your mercy. Deep is your grace, our hearts overflow with praise to you. Let's bow our heads this morning and go to Jesus, the upholder of our lives. Father, we bow before you this morning as our great helper, the upholder of our lives, the sustainer. And Lord, I don't know what, dark times our church family or those that have walked through this door are going through Lord. maybe some people in this very room today that are carrying burdens that they haven't even shared with anybody but their deep hurts there may be some in this room Lord that feel abandoned feel rejected they're wounded there may be some in this room Lord that have lost hope Lord there may be some in this room that want to give up Would you, in these moments, Father, come to them in a very real way and show them the beauty of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross for their sins, experiencing the darkness and the forsakenness and the abandonment so that they would never have to experience that through faith in Him. Lord, give us permission to cry out to you to bear our souls to you. We love you and we thank you that you are our helper, that you are the upholder, the sustainer of our lives. You sustain David and you will sustain us all because of Jesus. It's in your name that we pray these things. And i ask you to.